I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcasts is supported by Infratech. Bring indoor comfort to outdoor living with Infratech Comfort Heaters. Hello, my name is Demetrius. Jason is out today, but you are listening to Spaces Podcasts Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Again, Jason is out. Um, Crazy story that he just texted me. Uh, So we'll dig into that next season because this is our last episode of season four. So it's been a long, long ride. We touched a ton of topics but it's been a good season and I I couldn't think of a better way to sort of wrap this season up with our guests today. We're going to dig into sort of what we talk about here in greater detail about the importance of space. So we're going to get into that in a short break. But before we do, we have to give a quick nod to our sponsor. In the last few years, premium outdoor spaces have become a must-have architectural feature, and Infratech outdoor electric heating systems have become the brand of choice among leading architects. Infratech heaters provide energy-efficient, ambient warmth that allows homeowners to live outdoors during cooler months. Clients love them because they can enjoy 100 more nights a year outside. Architects love them because of their unparalleled versatility, From heater capacities and colors to mounting options that can either seamlessly disappear or accentuate a space with beautiful decorative coverings. They're also the only comfort heating company to offer smart home integration and hands-free voice-activated control. 
For over 60 years, Infratech has made their products in the USA at competitive prices. They offer incredible design and live technical support at every stage of a job. Infratech is specified at the world's most prestigious properties. Learn why and sign up for a free consultation at infratech-usa.com forward slash podcasts. And one of the things that I really love about Infratech is their flexibility to do a lot of different things. They have, I mentioned it before, they have tons of colors, eight standard colors, unlimited custom colors, and then four mounting options, which includes what I love, the recess option. So make sure to check out Infratech. Link will be in our show notes. Back to our conversation, this is sort of a good bow to add to our season four uh, as we talk about the importance of space and to have someone on. um, She is an award-winning architect and design researcher at HKS. Uh, She bridges the gap between research and practice with a focus on design for health and well-being. Uh, I will let her fill in the rest, but please help me welcome Erin Peavy. Erin, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Demetrius. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I've listened to your podcast, uh, Shared Space, and love it. Um, The first three episodes are just like left cross, right cross, (laughs) like like so much data and, and information. And it's just like overwhelming to just have all of that in the first three episodes. I was like, okay, let's go. <laughs> I'm like, let's level set. Listen to the first three episodes. Then you'll have a jumping off point. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times people don't know how much data there is on how our mental health and how we connect with others and how like how our lives are spent and how the built environment shapes that and so it's just nice to be like here's a bunch of crazy (laughs) facts like that are well established that you may have never heard Yeah. yeah yeah it was uh I mean I've been looking for for that, <laughs> for, 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 for everything that you, you've been putting out. And uh, so, so I've been following along and it's uh, a huge resource and it's motivating to, to understand and see that the data is out there and, and see you present it. So um, backing up a little bit, what, what made you start Shared Space uh, as a podcast? I can kind of guess considering yeah. the timing of when you started it, oh. but... <laughs> That was actually, well, it was a little bit of a coincidence. Um, he's referring to the wonderful pandemic we're all living in. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I had wanted to start one for a while. So I do a lot of like writing and other types of things. And it's funny, I just um, I really wanted a creative outlet. It's I, This is like kind of silly, but I had worked really, really hard for over a decade. And I was just like, oh my God, when is it? my time. Um, and I had a daughter and she turned one. And so I was like, all right, it's mama time. And I took a improv class and I loved it. I had so much fun. And I essentially like COVID hit and I had been thinking of doing a podcast years before, before I became a mom. And it just was this time to come back to it. I remember talking with this friend and she was like, well, maybe you should start a blog or maybe you should do this. And I was like, no, I want to ask people questions. Like, yeah. And so really that's where it was born. All that data that is that first few episodes is really out of 
a report I wrote for South by Southwest that was kind of happening around the exact same time. And it was like, how do we level set people and acknowledge this like hunger for information and this feeling that we all have. And I feel like, you know, I I have a background in both architecture and psychology, Mm -hmm. and I've always seen them as completely 100% linked. Like I don't understand architecture without psychology. Psychology to me is like constantly being influenced by space. And I just wanted to see that in the world. And I wanted to bring out those like voices that you hear, for instance, like at conferences over glasses of wine or drinks where like, they're like, oh my gosh, so this data, da, 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 da. Yeah. and like, they're not worried about presenting it in this dry, peer-reviewed <laughs> sense. Like they're like, this is so cool. Yeah. And I really wanted to capture that. So that was a huge part of it. Yeah. So you mentioned the background of psychology and, and obviously <laughs> architecture design. What drew you towards the psychology part? And and can you expand a little bit on that, of that connection between psychology and, and the buildings that we design? Yeah. So, I mean, I will say for me, it was like many people, a wandering path. So like when I was in high school, I was like, I'm going to be a social worker. So I started taking, like I started taking psychology and sociology, criminology. And I just, I loved it all, but I realized like my calling, my personality wasn't a good fit. I started at Loyola University in New Orleans and I was like, well, I love psychology. I'll just kind of start on this path and figure out what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I, my first year I took environmental psychology, which is essentially the two combined. Yeah. And I was, I mean, my mind was blown. I remember like sitting in class, like just like thrilled. Yeah. Edge of my seat, thrilled. I was just like, are you guys hearing this? This yeah. <laughs> I'm like, we need this class. Like this class needs to be mandatory yeah. for everyone. And I think that's the thing that like gets me anyways, rabbit trails. But like, I could talk about our educational system and how <laughs> we need to like humanize architecture. Cause like we design for people. We don't design just pretty pictures. That's, that's, you know, being a pure artist or sculptor. Yeah. And like that human element is essential in giving our work meaning. And I think we need to have more tools that train us to do that well. Yeah. What problems do you see right now um, with the way that we design and, and sort of the effects on people? Yeah. So, I mean, where to start? Right? I mean, I think... <laughs> yeah. It's just a long no, but... list. <laughs> I think, you know... I always think a lot of people have really good intentions, um, but they don't necessarily know. And we're incentivized in one direction, oftentimes blinded to all of the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I think of like the sustainability movement as a really good parallel. Um, So for a long time, we were doing all of these things that were really bad for the environment and we had (laughs) no idea, right? Like we just had no idea. And now we know but we're still kind of choosing to do it. And you're like, okay. And then one day let's evolve to like not choosing to do that. And I think like for the built environment and how it impacts health and well-being, I think we're, we're like a little bit behind the sustainability standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just going to give an example that I drive past every single day, which is um, I live in a, a beautiful area close to downtown Dallas. And I think a lot of what like makes it vibrant is that there are certain areas that are really just those like 
old kind of downtowns that you think of where it's super walkable. Yeah. There's lots of little shops. And then there's a bunch of condos going up. Like there's a bunch of like, like apartments, con- like just giant, giant complexes. Like replacing that walkable areas. So what's interesting is like, it's like, okay, so right outside of our, some of them are replacing, uh, but some of them are like right outside and you're like, oh, so it can start to expand it. Great. And so like, I remember seeing one and I was like, okay, cool. So the base will be like mixed use. And then this will have like a cute coffee (laughs) shop and a this and a that. And like, I was like, okay, it'll be all right. Then I realized because of zoning, because of political will, because of our will and what we see as our role as citizens and designers like that stupid thing is just getting built like it's tearing down something historic yeah. it's getting built and it's not adding to the fabric of our cities yeah to the community exactly because like i'm just like design is never neutral each thing we design can either have a positive impact or a negative impact mm-hmm. and when you think about a lot of times like that impact we're like, oh, okay, does it have an immediate financial return? And it's like, are we all just business people that have yeah. not, like, also like what a short-sighted view of life because when you just design for the short term, whether it's, you know, in a product or a building or a policy, you're missing out on like, the long-term impacts to humans and to, like you said, to the community. Yeah. Like you're changing that community fabric. And because we are infrastructure builders and, and designers, we're changing it for the next 50 plus years. Yeah. Like let that stuff weigh on you. We need to help make this change. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. Yeah. And when you talk about like the, the condo, the high rise building, the thing about those buildings is like, developers and and architects will create these community spaces within it but that it's so forced that it doesn't work the way the community actually happens and you talked about it a little bit on your podcast is like having the front porch and for those random engagements of just walking by and saying hi and you sort of get this gradual build up to a friendship and engagement when you just have your pool room, it's not, it's so forced. It's like, and you, you're typically going to go in there with your immediate friends already. Totally. So you're not branching out to, to meet your neighbors too often and walking from the lobby or from the garage to your apartment. There is no opportunity to engage no. with your neighbors. No. Uh, there's no intermediate spaces that sort of break it down to, to have that opportunity to, to cross paths or anything like that. So all of that stuff gets removed from what could be those opportunities to to create a community. I hundred percent. And I think of like, so I think the UK has given more thought to this for a longer period of time. They have a minister of loneliness and they, uh, so I've been, the pandemic, one silver lining of the pandemic is I've been like hanging out and nerding out with a bunch of UK people that are yeah. like really focused on loneliness and lon- like some of them, there's like a small subset that are looking at loneliness in the bills environment. And I just love, like, if you take that same exact example, right. And then you say, well, instead of making that pool hall within the space, right? Like so deep in that it's like only for the community. What if it becomes a connector space? What if it has a coffee shop in it that serves both the 
people that live there as well as the surrounding community mm-hmm. and what if that serves as a point of connection and then they offer art classes there or they offer like what if we think of it as an intergenerational space like what if this space is starting to be measured on the quality of life that it promotes rather than just like I don't know convenience and efficiency and yeah. like I mean, we've designed to that. And this this is where we've gotten us. Like we've gotten us with lots of chronic health conditions and severe loneliness. And I mean, not to like paint a gloomy picture, but I'm like, (laughs) we've got to turn it around people. Like this is what we've designed for. And now we need to design for, for different, for connection. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned the loneliness. I think in your either first or second episode, you, you gave a bunch of like, huge (laughs) Huge statistics uh i think it was like 26 percent um elevated mortality rate yeah Yeah. elevated mortality rate by 26 percent based on loneliness 29 percent on isolation and 32 percent for living uh from living alone yeah can you talk a little bit about about uh (laughs) uncovering this sure So, I mean, and I think one of the, so all of those are like, whoa, what does that even mean? And um, Julianne Holt-Lundstedt, who I've partnered with and have written with on Psychology Today and others, she is amazing. Um, And she always compares it to everything from obesity to smoking to heart disease and all of these things that we think of as major life-threatening things. But so being lonely um, or social isolation, which are actually two separate things that are often mixed, but both of them have a greater negative impact on your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's madness. So the the thing that I like to say right after it is the great news (laughs) is that um, (laughs) social connection, living a socially connected life has beneficial effects at 50%, right? So like that outpaces that sort of neutral, right? So if you can identify this and say, oh, wow, it's up to me now to help foster social connection in my life and to help, you know, design for it in other people's lives, which gives me meaning, then you're able to start combating that. Like, I just want to say it is not without vulnerability. It is not without struggle. It is not like, I'm not painting a rosy picture of like, guys, just like hold hands. It will all be great. It is a slug, but it's really an important one. Like, you know, sometimes you're like, I don't know about you, but I'm not always pumped to go work out. Like sometimes (laughs) I'm like, okay, you're like lacing the shoes. Like, uh, um, but then whenever I come back from a run or from a walk, like, I'm just like, oh my God, why don't I do that? all the time. And I think that that's a really important part about social connection and reaching out is like, you know, you never know the impact that you have on someone else. I I think of that. There's a super fun little like data point study that looks at the likelihood somebody is going to smile at you on the street versus like the likelihood someone's going to smile back Mm -hmm. when you smile and wave. And sometimes you never even see them, but like when it's being studied by people in a study, they can see the person smile and start to be nicer to other people. And it's like, Mm. it's a contagion. Yeah. Like it's a good, like kindness is a contagion. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, but I know it's hard. And I just want to say like, 
for anyone out there that's like, okay, I'm going to do this. Like, just know sometimes it hurts, but like, I'm, I am proud of you. So yeah. The loneliness factor creates the opportunity to go down these rabbit holes of pulling yourself further away from society and going down these really negative thoughts and radicalization and, and thinking of very far out things. Oh, yeah. And the way that we design has an effect on creating these environments for people to first feel isolated and then not encourages, but makes it easier to yeah. withdraw even faster and more. Yeah. And the thing is, is that it's a downward spiral, yeah. right? Or it can be upward spiral. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to think about the built environment, not as like, just remember like how much you love being forced to interact with other people. Like nobody likes to be, <laughs> <laughs> like nobody, but like how much do you like to be invited yeah. Like almost everybody. Right. Yeah. And so like, that's why I like, you know, that example of adding a coffee shop that's both open to the community or open inside. Like it says everybody's welcome. Mm-hmm. And it says like, you know, it, especially if it's a community center, like come in join us for events. Like, you know, there's stuff going on and you are invited. And mm-hmm. if you don't come like, that's okay. Like we'll keep showing up and we'll keep having this, but social isolation is really toxic for us. And I think that that feeling of loneliness and feeling like we're the only people in the world that feel the way that we feel can be really isolating and can open us up to a different type of vulnerability, not mm-hmm. the one that we choose, but rather vulnerability to be manipulated um, into doing stuff that like isn't about compassion, isn't about our best selves, but is about seeing people as other. I used to have a friend that would tell me um, I hate gossip and drama. And I used to have a friend that would be like, Aaron, the easiest way to make friends is to like jointly hate the same thing or person. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, oh my God. No, <laughs> I refuse. Um, but I think, I mean, when you say that, I just think of that example because that's what that's, that's the negative part that social isolation can do to us. And I think our brains are just wired they're wired for a different world, right? Mm-hmm. Took us a lot of evolution to get here. And they're wired for connection. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of data that shows, you know, when you're like not thinking about anything and your mind is wandering, there's a good amount of data that shows that really your brain thinks about interactions. It thinks about that conversation that you had with that person or that thing or that thing. And it's really about that social connection because social connections are essential to our survival from minute one um, all the way to year 100. Yeah. You know, when you talk about that, we're, we're in a period of our society where technology is just like a tidal wave. Yeah. So it makes our built environment that much more important to keep us tethered to reality. Throughout your studies and, and, and being an architect, what are like one or two things in your mind are important to either think about or actual yeah. design solutions that you feel are good to, to sort of move forward with. Totally. Okay. So I have a report that goes into all of these details um, on HKS's website and it's really about design for social health, but I'm just going to give you like a few tan- like very tangible things. So you talked about the front porch. I think that why the front porch is really applicable. And I would just say, it doesn't 
It doesn't have to be a front porch in a, in a suburban home or in a this or in a that. It needs to be this in-between space that you're able to feel ownership of, but also share with the public realm. So like, for instance, a ton of restaurants and other places started to bridge outside of their walls to have outside seating and things like that, which you see in a lot of really well-connected cultures and countries across the world is these public places. Where can we go and be in public, but also like as a part of our private spaces, having that liminal space, having that in-between space where, you know, whether you want to call it a threshold or... Um, you know, it can be a balcony or it can be a entryway. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. I also think um, I love the idea around how do we focus on focal points? So like a shared area of focus. So, you know, you and I may not know each other. We're out somewhere and we both see this really cool thing, whether it's a mural or, or a sculpture or inner, like I see some really cool interactive stuff. Um, both in um, some areas of Dallas right now in downtown, but um, or in some of our parks, but also in Millennium Park in Chicago. Mm -hmm. You know, even you think of the Bean, or you think of certain like kind of they, they have these beautiful artistic sort of splash pad meets museum things. Yeah. They're they're amazing, and those are places where people gather. And I think it's important to remember like we have multiple levels of social connection. So with, with our close people, with our sort of more core, core group, and then all the way out, just like, just interacting with other people. And so how do you create spaces where, like you talked about, where people get to regularly see the same people? I think that's one of the dangers of some of the traditional designs of high rises mm -hmm. is that complete anonymity that can feel like you're lost. Yeah. And I think thinking about how spatial dynamics, just like in dorms, dorms do a great job of this already. Like they think about the spatial and social dynamics of the space, how, you know, little areas can start to be recognizable pods. And then you're like, oh, these are my neighbors. And that we have this shared space or we have this whatever. It allows you to feel more connected. And I think just to remember like, when you're located in places of potential connection, those are those are great opportunities to meet other people and to get to know your neighbors. And lastly, I would just add that we need to think about accessibility on all fronts. Mm -hmm. So I think we do a half decent job of like the ADA version of accessibility, but how are we thinking about how our spaces feel to people from different cultural backgrounds, people from different races and genders. And, yeah. you know, I think that's really important. And I would just say none of that can be done without actually talking with the people. Yeah. So talk with the people, talk, talk to them about what makes them feel connected. Um, just find any group of, of sample, like you need, you need some data from the actual site, you know? So Yeah. I, that's a great point. And I think on a, on a policy front, we have yeah. to figure out some way to have a, a level of equality as far as the way that spaces are designed across the board for everyone, schools, yes. uh, office buildings, you know, businesses, they all have yes. to be, be elevated across the board to the same level because there are plenty of communities that have very poor conditions and they you see those effects in those communities. Uh, without that elevated design. 
if I can just add like, just to punctuate what you just said and how important that is. We think of redlining as something that happened. Mm-hmm. No, it's happening. Like all of all of those things, even if it's not, even if there are no new red lines being drawn down, those communities have been deinvested in. Their trees have been cut down and replaced. And there's a community that we're working with in Southern Dallas that literally they're beautiful, you know, trees in their backyard, which which were 30 feet from their house, mm-hmm. um, got turned into a mountain of shingles, six stories high, six wow. stories high, choking their lungs. Like, you know, they're still, many of them are still on oxygen. And yeah. I just think we would never let this happen in a lot of communities. Why is it okay to happen there? And so, you know, we're working with them, you know, to redesign what was a mountain of shingles and what should have been a place of gathering Mm -hmm. into a park. And I, you know, I believe in the city of Dallas and I hope that we will write this wrong. And I hope that this can be an example for communities everywhere, because this is not sadly not unique. I mean, you know, I think that this theme exists a lot of places and I want it to stand as an example for, you know, how we can create spaces of connection and healing. Yeah, completely agree. Thank you so much, Aaron. This was such a great conversation. Um, If people want to find out more and to follow along with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so I have a website, erinpeavey.com. And on there, you can see a lot of links to things that I've written, my Psychology Today post, other things like that, the podcast, um, or check me out on HKS's website. So. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. So thank you to our listeners. This has been a great season full of information. I hope you enjoyed what we put together this season. Got a lot coming out, and I promise the break won't be as long (laughs) next time. Uh, So I think we should be back in February. So keep us in your subscription uh, lineup. We will be back shortly. But thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you again to the listeners. We will talk again next time. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to Infratech Outdoor Comfort Heating for their support of this episode of Spaces Podcasts. Visit infratech-usa.com slash podcast to sign up for a free consultation and learn why Infratech is the choice for bringing indoor comfort to outdoor living. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon.
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.